Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply hello i'm dave hendon and i'm michael mcmullen and I'm Phil Yates. And welcome to episode 150 of the Snooker Scene podcast. And we're all, the big news is we're all in the same room together. It's not done on Zoom, Skype, none of that. We're actually sat around a table. Michael's been doing the Championship League pool. We're in the Championship League snooker. We're crossing over. And what a, well, episode 150, who'd have thought? After a year, which that's how long it's been, we're, we're together again. Yeah, well, you said in the same room. We've not even been doing albums in the same country. No. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, great to be here. To uh, look ahead to world qualifying, Henry and White, and all the rest of it. That's what we're here to talk about. But before that, Phil, we were at the Tour Championship. Um, a great week, uh, certainly for Neil Robertson, but uh, just a, a really terrific tournament. Obviously, it's the most elite event, obviously, on the circuit, because it's just the top eight in the world. Well, for me, it's a major already. It's only three years in to its existence. And it's got that status very quickly because of the fact that you've got the very best in the business there, You've got large prize money, which does matter, let's face it. And you've also got extended matches. Personally, in my eyes, it's taken over from the UK Championship because the UK is now best of 11 frames. It's not where it used to be in terms of prestige because back then it was best of 17 and in the early days, a, a two-day final. So yeah, That noise in the background, that shot's being fired at the Triple Crowners. Anyway, carry on. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who brought it up first this week? Eh? Yeah, well, carry, on, no. Phil, carry on, No, I... I <laughs> Listen, I, I don't deny that the Masters in the World Championship are on a very, very high plane and they will remain so forevermore, presumably. But I do deny that, you know, the UK is impervious to criticism, not in the sense that it's a great tournament, but it does have challenges. And of course, when the Saudi Arabian event takes place, with the huge amount of prize money we're going to have there, that will be another serious challenge to its position. But th- my view on all that is, I think like we're lucky we've got so many big tournaments actually, and and I'm not, I don't actually think they need to be ranked. I mean, the World Championship is number one, obviously. Just let's just be happy the fact that we've got this big event on the circuit. We had over a million on Saturday night watching on ITV4, Ronnie and Sullivan, Barry Hawkins. Um, you can't, you know, you're at the mercy when you've got one match a day of how long they're going to be the worst of runaways, including the final. 
Neil Robertson, very interesting, actually, he was saying just this morning, uh, Will Snooker interview that they recorded before the final, that you know he'd been in a very bad place. He actually basically wanted to, to go home to Australia. He said he didn't want to even play in the World Championship. He was so homesick, hadn't seen his family for nearly two years. His partner, Miller, wrote to the Australian government and they allowed his father to come over. So he, came, he arrived the day before the Tour Championship and obviously that boost, having just been with him, being able to spend time with him, getting rid of the homesickness, has clearly helped him. Ronnie O'Sullivan's fifth defeat in a final. Um, my view on on sort of all of that is I don't think it's actually an accident. Yes, he was outplayed, but he had chances early on in that final session. My theory is Ronnie's very good at taking pressure off himself, the way he talks, you know, the way he behaves. Even before the event began, he said he wanted to quit and his cue wasn't, wasn't proper and all the rest of it. But maybe he's taking that too far. Maybe he's not focused enough, actually, coming into the last session. Um, he was seen pretty quickly before it started taking his stuff to his car, you know. Um, you think, well, that's not really preparing properly. Um, so maybe he's taking that a bit too far. Um, but on the balance of it, Robertson played the best snooker of the week by far. Yeah, I mean, he was obviously the standout performer. And I, I think with O'Sullivan, from, it is interesting to lose five ranking finals in one season. I sense it's a little bit like... Round about 2005, 2006, when he kept talking about how he didn't care whether he won or lose, won or lost, acted like he didn't care whether he won or lost a lot of the time. He was trying to, I think, maybe take pressure off himself, but in the end he wasn't helping himself in the later stages of matches. He was almost throwing them as if he could say to himself afterwards, well, I didn't really care anyway. And I just sense a little bit of that attitude actually coming out from him again. I think he's become a little more scared of the very best players. And it's generally been players like that. I know Jordan Brown beat him in the Welsh, but it's generally been players like that who have been beating him in finals. The question about Robertson you raised there, I don't know whether you know this or not, but is the plan for his father then to stay on yeah. for the World Championship? It is, although he always comes over for it. And, I, and I've, I've always thought maybe that's... Because he wasn't here when he won it, his mother came. Maybe that's put pressure on Neil, actually, over the years. The fact that he wants his dad to be there to see him. I think it's a bit different this year. I've had a, an email from Callum Law, actually, about all this. He said, the Tour Championship was another excellent week of snooker, both in terms of the quality on the table and the ITV coverage, which one presented to pundits to commentators was first class. Thank you. I was pleased to see Neil Robertson win and play so well. Watching Robertson when he's at his best is superb and up there with anybody in the game in terms of quality and entertainment. What was noticeable throughout, and he spoke about it himself, was Robertson trying to play the game on his terms by continuing to be aggressive, taking on long res, etc. Too often in the past, Robertson has come undone in longer matches against the likes of... That's Phil's phone, of course, mm. he's, he's got no discipline at all. Mm. Uh, longer matches against the likes of Selby and Higgins because he's allowed them to dictate how the game was played with long bouts of tactical play, so it's good to see him play the way that suits him best. I also think Robertson is one of the game's great ambassadors, both in terms of the success he's had and the way he conducts himself. Never seems to be any clowning around, disrespecting opponents or complaining about things with Robertson. He comes across as someone who loves snooker, appreciates the game, what the game has given him. And personally, I'm pleased to see him get the rewards for the hard work he puts in the way he treats the game. We might come on to... He asked another question later about something different. He's a great talker, that's for sure. Fantastic talker. Yeah, he's a great ambassador, great player. And uh, be interested to see how he gets on at the World Championship. That's what we're here to talk about. Now Phil's turned his phone off. Uh, <laughs> Stephen Hendry, Jimmy White. I mean, you know... Well, where do you even start with that? They've been pulled out. They were the first names pulled out of the draw to play each other in the first qualifying round. I actually... Ivan, uh, who's the head of media, the media czar at World Snooker... Um, he texted me just before it was announced, and I I thought like Hendry that it was a joke. Like Hendry thought it was a joke when Jill Douglas told him. I thought, oh, that's just, yeah, good gag. It's not a joke. It's happening next Monday night. A lot of people before we get on to, we're going to talk about their crucible battles because it's been seven in total. A lot of people asking how to watch it at the moment. It's live on the Eurosport app. 
Barry Hearn was on uh, the Talking Snooker podcast, where our good friends Nick and Phil do today, and he was saying he would like it to get a wider audience, and that I think everybody agrees with that. I'll be commentating on the second half with Neil. I have no influence on anything else, so unfortunately I can't, you know, get it put anywhere else. But let's see. You know, there's a week yet. Um, it may change, but it's certainly on the Eurosport app, as all the qualifiers are. Oh, Phil, where do you start with this? Uh, well, let's go back to their first meeting at the Crucible, 1988, uh, second round. Stephen was very young, he was only 19 then, um, and it was a bona fide classic. Yeah, you knew then that I think the start of a rivalry had happened. Um, it was a classic, there's no doubt about it, um, because I think both players played a type of game that was atypical to the circuit at that time. It was very attacking, very fast, uh, and that's why it stood out, apart from the quality and also the, the sort of future significance of it. You knew that wasn't going to be the first meeting at the Crucible. You just knew. Yeah. They, they had actually had a great match at the British Open, which Henry had won only about, I don't know, six or seven weeks before that. And I think that had a great match in the Grand Prix, perhaps, the season prior to that. So it didn't come out of the blue. We were all expecting it going into the World Championship. I remember, you know, it was almost like a feeling. I know Henry played Dean Reynolds in the first round. I can't remember who Jimmy played, but there was a sense of, you know, don't get in the way of this. Mm. Don't go winning your first round matches or anything. Don't stop us having this Henry White match in the second round. And so unusual to have. They were certainly two of the four best, probably two of the three best players in the world at the time. And because of the way the rankings worked at that stage, I mean, incredibly, Henry wasn't even in the top 16 going into that match. It was his last match before he was officially sort of promoted into it. To have the meeting at that early stage of the championship uh, was extraordinary. And it, it, it was what snooker was going to be like, not just the Henry-White rivalry, but the sort of snooker that we were going to see throughout the 90s and beyond. Not just the fact, the size of the breaks, because I don't think Jimmy had a century. Well, I've just looked now. So Jimmy had 11 half centuries. Yeah. Stephen had three centuries and seven half century so effectively between them they had 21 big breaks yeah so that was the point I was going to make it was the regularity of yeah. it it was the fact that there were no frames really at all that were you know without big breaks or anything like scrappy or anything like that so it wasn't just the, the, so much the size but I think we've seen many matches since then yeah. well we've seen many more centuries uh, but the regularity with which big breaks were being made say 50 plus would stack up, I think, with any best of 25 you'd see well, between two top players today. Well, you'll remember this. The BBC used to do, and this is how long ago it was, they used to do a Christmas mm. retrospective of the snooker year, which, of course, meant their four tournaments. Yeah. Um, but that year, they just showed highlights of this match. A second-round match at the World Championship. They ignored everything else that had happened. There had been some big stuff. Doug Mountjoy had won the UK, for example. Um, you know, Davis was world champion again. But they ignored all that. And... Uh, they just showed this match because it was considered then to be extraordinary. Now it would be kind of because we take for granted the standard. That's what we expect. But th this is where it kind of started, isn't it? Yeah, you, you could suspect almost that someone was supposed to be editing that together and they forgot about it till the day before and said, oh, I'm going to be doing that snooker review. Let's just put out that Very match. cynical. It was really... No, I'm not saying that happened. But it, um, it, it was strange, actually. They showed that match and then they finished it by saying... And just to round things off, here are four players we think could be big stars in the future. And I think they just showed one shot from each of them. It was probably Steve James and David Rowe and people like that. I think I was slightly going too far because, as you say, I mean, Mountjoy winning the UK, even Henry beating Davis in the semis of that, they were very big stories. And the 9-0 uh, Masters final. So to overlook them, I think, was taking it too far. But it was completely out of the norm for the time. It's worth saying as well, I think Jimmy welcomed Hendry coming along. Because Hendry played the sort of game Jimmy liked. Now, 
you know, looking back now, he might not have welcomed it so much. I think it's important to say, Phil, and it's true in snooker, it's certainly true in a lot of sports, a lot of rivalries are built up based on sort of grudges and quite often hype. Um, this is a friendly rivalry. They like each other. They're very different people. Hendry, the ultimate pro. Jimmy, the kind of, you know, the lovable tearaway. But they have huge respect for one another. It's a rivalry, and we're here talking about it, that is, you know, real, but it's not, there's no unpleasantness in it. And, you know, there's no bitterness in it either from Jimmy's perspective. Yeah, parallels with the rivalry between John Higgins and Ronnie O'Sullivan, mm. which is built entirely on mutual respect. There's never been any hint of angst or, or friction between them. Obviously, White wants to win at every single opportunity he had against Hendry, vice versa. When Hendry won one of his world titles, the 1817 one, when Jimmy missed the black, which we'll talk about later, someone asked him, well, you know, did you feel sorry for Jimmy? And Hendry said, well, if I don't win the title, he's the guy I'd like to see win, but I didn't feel sorry for him. And of course, that would be a, a, a mutual thing. It's the kind of rivalry that I would call a healthy rivalry. It's not hyped, as you say. It's not manufactured. It's but, real. Yeah, but you have to pick one side or the other. If you're not neutral if you're watching. This is the thing. You're either for Hendry or you're for White. Now, when I was watching them, I was for Jimmy. Um, because when I think when you're young, you sort of see... I mean, Jimmy... I'm not sure he was anti-establishment, necessarily. He was just clearly... He lived life on his own terms. Um, now, as you get older, you begin to respect more, actually, the professionalism and the dedication that Hendry had which is what you want to put into your own career. But, but when you're young, certainly I'm only speaking for myself, Jimmy seemed exciting. He seemed sort of, you know, like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a world I don't quite know about. I'd quite like to know about it. I started in 1988 in September, so this was my last World Championship, the 88 one, where I was watching as a, as a fan. I was with you. I was always a massive Jimmy White fan, as I was Alex Higgins before that. But when you get into the sport, what turned it for me was and it was nothing against Jimmy whatsoever we've still got a really good relationship I know as you have Dave it was the way that Hendry was treated by spectators I thought was disgraceful particularly at the Masters but even at the Crucible there have been the odd occasions where there's a, a few boos rung out as they did for Steve Davis and you think to yourself why on earth is this happening? Jealousy they, yeah, they, nice. Exactly, yeah. they've done nothing whatsoever <laughs> yeah. to warrant being booed and so sort of the, the, the curmudgeon in me sort of think well I'm going to be with Hendry here because it's just it's just justice if he does well having said that I think undoubtedly in all of their meetings not just at the Crucible I think the crowd being with Jimmy really helped Stephen because he got that personality where it was a kind of I'll show you kind of thing the people doing that booing are the sort of people who now spend their days on Twitter but it's interesting, you're, you're talking about being, you know, young, and you and I are pretty much exactly the same age, but I was completely the opposite. I was, I was t always on Henry's side. Not so much by then, because he hadn't become this, you know, figure of sustained excellence that he later did, but certainly in the later battles, I was always much more on Henry's side. And, you know, you and I were both still at school when all those finals were played, and I found myself very much in the minority because it was such a big deal then. Everyone was watching it, and everyone took a side. So I was uh, very much in the minority for those. The great thing about that 88 match, actually, as I recall, it was played across three separate days, so it really spread out the drama. Saturday morning it finished. Saturday yeah. morning it finished, and I remember the rest of that day, you almost didn't want to watch it. I think it was live on Grandstand. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was certainly live. It was certainly live all the way through the morning, but the rest of the day was just completely overshadowed. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, later in the day, was it maybe Terry Griffiths against Willie Thorne or something like that, first session. It, it was just, everything was such an anti-climax after what had gone before on and that it, Saturday morning. And it was also ultimately an anti-climax for Jimmy because obviously he wins that. Um, Henry's already, by that point, a ranking event winner. You know, you'd think, OK, he's going to challenge Davis in the final. Terry Griffiths beat him in the semis. We go to 1990, they play each other in the final. Um, I read the Snooker Seed report, actually, that I, I, I imagine Clyde must have written, and he sort of... He sort of said there was a certain inevitability about Henry winning. Even at the end, he didn't sort of he said something like he didn't celebrate like a man who won the pools, but more like a man who thought this was kind of his destiny. And that just shows the, the, the cool and the and the the absolute sort of um, I don't know where it comes from that driven character he has, but he clearly has it. Um, the average frame time in that final was twelve minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, incredible, you know. The, and that and that's not just Henry, obviously. That's Jimmy as well. Yeah, there was a certain inevitability about it. I remember that final. You just felt Jimmy played all right, but he just couldn't keep up. It was as simple as that. And it's funny you mentioned that the, the way he celebrated at the end. And I actually spoke to him about this a few years ago. He never seemed to know how to celebrate when he had yeah. won. It was a bit like sort of Alan Shearer when he scored a goal. He, he just would put his hand up in the air. He didn't really seem to know. Very similar sort of. You know, driven character as well. There was one year I remember at the end of the final, he just sort of took his chalk out of his pocket and started chalking his cue. I mean, you know, what's <laughs> that for? Another frame. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're not going to be playing again for, for for a few months in those days. Well, let's let's move on, Phil, to '92 because that's there's two finals that people remember. Let's be honest, '92 and '94. '92, um, even Clive, who's not a man given to hype, at one point I think when it was 12-6, said something like, "Surely Jimmy's going to win it now," because he was playing really well. Um, of course, the World Championship is not one match, the final. It's four sessions, and we know things changed. At the end of the third session, Hendry won the last two frames for 14-10, just plants the seed, and in the evening plays, well, really well. One of the most popular aspects of ITV coverage now, hot shots. Mm. And then, actually. Yeah. Mm. If there was all-time... music. Hot, yeah. If there's all-time hot shots, the brown that Hendry potted, with the cue ball in the jaws of the middle pocket... A dead weight that would be right up there along with a, a bluey potty with the rest against Steve Davis in the UK Championship final they would be for me Henry's two greatest maybe the first red as well in the 147 in the Liverpool Victoria Charity Challenge final against Ronnie O'Sullivan when he got back to 14-10 I started to sense that not so much that Jimmy would would go but that Henry was absolutely in the zone and people have said, oh, wide collapsed, wide collapsed. Maybe there was a little wobble, but it was more to do with Henry's excellence. He just got the bit between his teeth and absolutely went for it. And, you know, what really changed, I'm not watching it from the press seats, I'm watching it from the press room. And the atmosphere in the press room just went as flat as a pancake. Myself and Clive... We're absolutely entranced by this, but the, the vast majority of the Fleet Street press who badly wanted Jimmy White to win, they were all... It was like a, a, the air out of a balloon. It's funny how often, isn't it, You know, when someone has got a bit of a deficit to make up in a multi-session final, and people say, well, what's he got to do here? The answer is always is, well, he's got to make a good start today. And obviously that was the case with Hendry, but he actually didn't. You know, four frames behind overnight, he actually falls further behind and... I think everyone felt this is it. I mean, White had gone in playing so well. He'd won the British Open, he'd won the European Open. He'd sort of underlined how well he was playing with the maximum in the first round. Anyone who believes in fate and destiny, I think, got a rude awakening that night because this was not how the story was meant to end. For me, by the time I got the 14 all, I, I did, couldn't see any way back. I think the first couple of frames of the night, I think Henry made a pretty good clearance in the first. 
And I think he won the second of the night on the black. And at that stage, you could see already White was struggling with the concept of getting over the line. Might have been different if it had been as close as that, but he'd only needed one or two more. Suddenly, the four frames he needed, when it had been 14-8, that didn't seem very far. By the time it comes back to about 14-12, it seemed like a world of distance he still had to cover. And let's not forget what happened in the last two frames. By the way, I'm not remembering this. I've got Chris down as excellent Crucible Almanac in front of me as a, as a security blanket. In the last two frames, from 16-14 to, to capture the title, Hendry made breaks of 134 and 112. Two beautiful efforts. It was just epitomised what he meant. He wasn't just a winner. He was a stylish, brilliant winner. Yeah, and also that driven personality again. It's interesting, we did our episode of Puffery and Liars, you'll recall, mm-hmm. about the sort of myths in snooker. I still hear, pe- I still hear people say Jimmy was 14-8 up overnight. He wasn't. He was 10-6 no. over, up overnight. But one of the things he was unable to do, and it definitely had some sort of effect, I think, on him not winning, not just against Henry, but anyone. He always had an entourage with him, and he spent too much time going around getting passes for people, spending too much time with all that, that scene. Whereas Hendry, as to use one of Jimmy's phrases, wouldn't give you a nod in the desert. Hendry was on his own. He'd have John Carroll or Q Masters with him. That was it. And he was completely focused on the job in hand. And as you say, by the time the chance came to win that final, he was ready to play his best snooker of the whole tournament. Um, I remember it turning around. You're right, Jimmy didn't... It wasn't a series of, you know, sort of missing, but there were little mistakes here and there, little safety errors even that Hendry got in from. And you just sensed, yeah, this, this is just going to turn around completely. And there's a very telling shot we've all seen many times. I've no idea which frame it was in, but it was clearly near the end. It may even have been the last frame. Jimmy's actually sitting in his chair, not hiding his emotions at all, shaking his head, putting his, his face into his palm. He knew that, that he'd blown it. Yeah. So, 93, this is, so not, Henry always says this is his favourite of them all, because, he, he, as he said, I ruined the final for everyone. He won with a session to spare, 18-5. Um, I, I suppose everyone would be hoping for another dramatic final. They'd have to wait another year for that. Um, I guess that was kind of his sort of peak period, wasn't it? You know, that's when he was just the best, and, and he proved it by just just basically hammering the guy. And it wasn't just the final, was yeah. it? I mean, it was all through that championship. Yeah. It was a strange sort of championship that we didn't have many memorable finishes with some very unusual players qualifying. Well, the qualifiers have been a long time before, haven't they? Yeah, they've been in September. Yeah. And what had happened was the guys ranked 17 to 32 had come in a bit cold against players who've been playing qualifiers all summer long. And so there were a lot of surprises. Um, so, yeah, strange championship. And we spoke about inevitability earlier. Even more so that time. And the thing was, White hadn't gone in in great form. He'd started that season brilliantly. Amazingly, he'd put what had happened in the 92 final behind him so well that he'd won the Grand Prix in the UK. But he'd faded a bit in the second half of the season, so he wasn't going in with the same level of expectation. But I seem to recall Henry's first shot. And you've got the almanac there, Phil. Um, was it a one three six in the first frame? Something like that? It was indeed. Yeah, And I think it may have been his first shot. He drilled one in. People forget how often this used to happen. You don't really see this now. The cue ball was on the ball cushion. He drilled in a long red. Players don't even tend to go for those now. I may be remembering that slightly wrong, but as we say, it was a total clearance in the opening frame. And it never looked like being any different after that. And what you were saying there about how you know he used to just keep to himself in the venue, he'd be with John Carroll. It was very good company, actually, a good person to fill that role because you know he was all the company that anyone needed. Some people feel there's a sort of counter-argument to that, that... In some way, it might have been better for him to behave in a different way and win fewer world titles. It's a completely absurd argument. Mm, yeah. Well, let's move on then to 94. I think this is the most mm. memorable of them all, obviously, because he went to a, a last frame. 
Um, I mean, the first thing to say, because they kept on being in opposite halves. Obviously, Hendry, defending champion, Jimmy managed to be the two or, two or three seed. Um, so they gave us another final. I think by this point, it was clear that if Jimmy wasn't going to win it soon, he wasn't going to win it. Because um, Hendry wasn't going anywhere, was he? Um, no one really talks about anything in the match other than, <laughs> other than the end of it. Clearly, to get to 17 all, Jimmy's played great. But ultimately, you know, as in any sport, when you get the chance, it's there to be taken. And he didn't take it. He tw- as he said himself, he twitched a black. And let's face it, he got a start, if you like, because Stephen Hendry was playing with a broken bone in his arm. That was when he fallen over in the bathroom um, when he was 7-1 up on Dave Harold. Harold in the second round. So look at this. So he's beaten Surinder Gill in the first round, 10-1. He then goes 7-1 up on Dave Harold. He's clearly in the form, well, not of his life, but he was always in that kind of form, wasn't mm-hmm. he? But then he breaks the bone in his arm so he can't practice and he never practiced throughout the championship because it was just too painful he comes back Harold wins the first frame you think this is it no chance the next frame Henry makes a beautiful 1-2-4 queuing a little tentatively not playing power shots because of the pain and you think hold on a minute this guy can do anything he's superhuman so he wins that match again as I'll reiterate with a broken bone in his arm 13-2 he then beats Nigel Bond who at the time and through all of the 1990s was a very capable sort, 13-8. He then beats Steve Davis in the semi-finals, 16-9. And can I just interject there, and you, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there was an added edge to that match, because mm. if Davis had won it, he would have gone back to number one in the rankings. Well, you see Hendry at the end, when he wins, he sort of, you can see, he yeah. sort of just stays at the table. He thinks, right, that's, that box is tipped. Mm. Now on to the final. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also worth mentioning that Davis led that match 9-8. So, so Steve, uh, Stephen won the last eight frames in succession. So it wasn't only Jimmy White he was doing that kind of thing against, it was Steve Davis as well. It gets to the final, I'm thinking this is Jimmy's greatest chance because Jimmy was playing some really nice stuff as well. The black will live with him forever. It was just, it was horrible to see. It was like seeing a, a tennis player who's never won a, a Grand Slam event double faulting in the last game or a golfer who's never won a major missing a, a two foot put on the 18th green horrible horrible to see but that apart Hendry then made a 58 break which is often overlooked the pressure he was under was immense and yet sorry Phil and yet did anyone think he would miss I didn't I thought he won't miss and that's the measure of him mm. it was it, objectively a massive pressure situation but no one expected him to miss which, which says everything about Hendry. The thing about it as well, if you look back, I mean, they were all there. There was nothing left to do, really. I think he needed seven more balls, and I don't think he needed to do much to develop the Reds. They were all sitting there for him, and it just overwhelmed him. I mean, that was it. The fact that he'd been waiting so long, and he'd, he'd, he'd built it up so much. I mean, even as early as about his third final, he was talking quite openly about how devastated he'd be if he never won the World Championship, because he knew he was he was clearly good enough. And it just became too much for him in the end, and I mean, you know, he didn't just miss it by a little bit; he missed it by a, a really long way. But he did snooker, and he did sport in general a massive favour, because it reminded people that there are no guarantees. If there are guarantees, it's not as impressive, it's not as dramatic, is it, when it happens? There are no guarantees. You've got to do it. You can be knocking on the door a million times, but if it doesn't open. Yeah, and it's funny, people say that so often. It, it's the most wrong, oft-repeated cliche in sport, and in life generally, actually. 
if you keep knocking on the door mm. long enough, it will eventually open. Well, no, it won't. I mean, if there's nobody at home, it's never going to open. Sometimes you have to kick it in, don't you? Yeah. And he didn't manage it. And I think well, that was, of course, he's beginning to annoy me, the, the, the incredible thing he managed to say. Very gracious, actually, yeah. you have to say, yeah, to yeah. be making a little joke like that. But, yeah. th- but I think after that, maybe partly because of that, Jimmy's games did start to go. He wasn't quite contending as often for tournaments. He had a cancer scare, actually, as well, the next year. And they weren't in the, the different halves the following year, 95. So they get through to play in the one table, they play in the semi-final. Hendry has his maximum, only maximum in the one table. And after that, Jimmy's chances started to, to, to drift away and drift away. And eventually we get to 98 and he has to qualify. Drops out of the top 16. And very much like what's just happened, there was almost a sense of inevitability. Jimmy's got to qualify first time in years and years. He's going to draw Hendry, he's going to draw Hendry. And he does, and of course at that point, Stephen himself, of course he'd lost the world title to Ken the year before, he was just starting to struggle a little bit. He wasn't quite winning as many tournaments. So there was a great sense of anticipation, but again, he would have gone in favour for sure in that first round match. Oh yeah, I, I remember, that was the first year I went to the championship, but I was only there for the sort of later round, so I wasn't there for the first round. And on the night of the opening session of that match, I was at a football match between Ireland and Argentina. And I remember phoning someone, might have been you actually, because yeah. you, you were you were press officer yeah. at the time. Junior. Uh, yeah, exactly. And asking, uh, yeah, you don't want to take responsibility for what was going on in those days. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so anyway, I remember asking whoever it was I was talking to, I said, and what's the score in the White Henry match? And then, I think it was a bit of a lull in the match, so the crowd had gone a little bit quiet, but this huge, oh my God, just yeah. rang out around the stadium. I couldn't believe, and it wasn't even 7-0 by then. I think it may be gone 4 or 5-0 or something. And even that seemed surprising. Because, I, I mean, I thought Henry was going to win the championship that year. I thought, well, I know he didn't win it last year, but the fact is he still wins it most years. And he still won a few tournaments that season my, my as well. Memory, my memory was it was two evening sessions. Yeah. Now, he's gone 8-1 up, Jimmy, in the first one. And I was sat, as, as you said, I was like a junior press officer. I was sat at the little media desk. And Jimmy came over to use the phone, and he rang, let's say it was his wife, it was someone uh, someone who at home clearly who knew the score and he was sort of saying yeah yeah no it's going really well he said I bet he still comes back and beats me you know with that sort of that sort of joking but sort of not joking at the same time he knew that Hendry you know wouldn't have given it up but then the next night there was a mini comeback but Jimmy wins 10-4 gives it an oi oi Phil as he goes off oi oi he shouted brilliant (laughs) one of the preceding tournaments before the world championship then historically was the Irish Masters at Goffs and that was the first time we ever met Exactly. So we were there. This, this could be the last time. Who knows? We don't know, do we? Yeah, well. We were there and it was a very sort of communal atmosphere, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Hendry came into the press room and on several occasions he said to me and to other people, I'm going to draw Jimmy. I know I'm going to draw Jimmy. He just knew. He got, got that feeling. And of course, when the draw came out, it was, you know. Live on Grandstand, actually. Yeah. Uh, the draw was made, yeah. And by the way, this is a side issue. Why doesn't a television company take the draw for the world championship oh, these days God, it, it is, is just ridiculous it's, we saw the drama yeah. when Stephen drew Matt Selt in the Gibraltar Open and then of course it was it was magnified last week when ITV showed this reaction when uh, he, he drew Jimmy in, in this year's world championship qualifiers why don't they show the draw it's mind boggling to me but the, this conversation's been going on for 15 years I mean it's, it's incredible that something as simple as the draw has taken on a life of its own the time they messed it up when it was on the radio the time when they recorded it and then just sort of showed the draw on BBC Breakfast various other mess ups and every year it seems to be this this sort of hot potato that nobody wants to handle. Maybe it's because of those things that went wrong in the past. But yeah, as you say... And, and so being yeah. critical of TV companies brings me to that actual match. 
<laughs> what I recall is TV companies that don't employ you. Well, there aren't many of those. Just <laughs> 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 no, narrow it right no, down. No, well, yeah, yeah, up TV, yeah, and that's yeah, about yeah. all that's left. Anyway. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's brush over that one. Um, so it's 8-1 to, to White, and I'm thinking there's no way back, even given their history. Yeah, but, but, then, but hang on, how, how can you think that? Because... I mean, the, the, the Masters final in 91, the World final in 92. <coughs> Having seen those, I mean, how could anyone not think that there was at least a I, chance that well, Hendry could turn it around? I didn't, purely, and it's only because I'd observed Hendry. He came in that afternoon um, with Frank Callum, who was with him, the coach at mm. the time. And Frank was trying to, I mean, Frank was a sort of man of a few words anyway, but he was trying to just impart a few words. And he, Henry just didn't want to hear it. He, he looked like a man who'd lost already. Mm. He, yeah, he called him a man of few words. He makes Henry himself look like the scat man. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he's basically the first round of the night. White makes 59, Henry 72. And you think, hold on a minute. Then he gets to 8-4. The, the tension is immense because of the past history. Normally an 8-4 match, first to 10, you still think very unlikely to get, you know, to get over the line, the guys behind. But with what had gone before, you think there's still now a, a, a real chance. What happened at 8-4? The live coverage mm. ended yeah. to be replaced by a repeat of the book club. Not even an, an, it's a good episode in fairness. Not even, not, yeah, not even an original book club, a repeat of the book club. So we never got to see the final chapter. Very good. Yeah, might be. Yeah, we might be interrupted. Some people doing some important work. So yes, and that was that was um, obviously again a chance for Jimmy. Having you know, you think we beat Stephen Andrew in the first round, he could go all the way, but it just. It was just a sense by then it just wasn't going to happen for him. Well, he played great in the second round against uh, Darren, wasn't it? Darren Morgan, thirteen three maybe. Uh, but then, I mean, you look at what he would have had to do. That's even the problem. To carry by then, on there were too there. many good players. Yeah, because he would have had to beat O'Sullivan. Then he would have had to beat Higgins, who I think played better in that championship than anyone had ever played in any tournament up until then. Uh, and then he would have had to beat Doherty in the final, who you know was defending champion. And to, to beat him over four sessions would have been a huge challenge in itself. I never really thought he he was going to see it through. I mean, people say even a, a couple of years later in in two thousand, I think he got to the quarterfinals again and. I remember people saying, now this is it, it's going to be his time, the millennium year, because people thought, because it was the millennium year, yeah. Yeah, that was the thing, people thought, oh yeah, it's the millennium year, that's going to make a difference. I think by 98 it had gone past the stage where he was capable of of keeping that going. And the standard had gone up so much, and his own standard had declined a bit. So if he couldn't win it when he was one of the very best players in the world, the chances of him doing it when he had declined a bit and everyone else had got so much better... You know, were very slim indeed. So it, it was all about that, that win for well, him. My, my, my last memory of that night when he won the 10-4, I mean, you can imagine the pandemonium, pandemonium in the press room uh, that night. And at the end of it, because I didn't know, obviously I just started, I didn't know Jimmy at all, other than just, just knowing him, as a, you know, watching him. And when he's finished his sort of media commitments, he's walking out of the press room, I was sat with Bruce Beckett, the, who, was the, who was the sort of senior, the senior press, senior press officer. officer yeah. And he's gone... To sort of, he's gone... To both of us gone. Uh, we're going out now. You come in, and we ended up going to Josephine's, the, the celebrated, um, some would say, um, um, yeah, well, celebrated nightclub in, in Sheffield till the early hours. That was that was kind of my introduction to Jimmy. Is it still basically. there, by the way, Josephine? No, I don't think so. No, no. No, I think there's, there's a blue plaque up or something. But it'll um, be shut now anyway. Yeah, but yeah. So and now here we are. That was 23 years ago. Um, One really important thing about yeah. that whole scenario. What uh, Josephine's? No. <laughs> oh yeah, like he'd know where it even was. No, no, no. It was the fact that because Hendry lost in the first round and John Higgins yeah. won the mm. tournament, 
it meant that that ended Stephen Hendry's tenure, eight-year tenure as world number one, and that really did hurt him because, of course, it wouldn't have happened had John Higgins not won the preceding tournament. So, so many things had to come into play for that to occur, and it reminds me, actually, of the current situation because if Judd Trump were to go out in the World Championship early and Ronnie were to retain the title, unbelievably, considering the lead that Trump has had for, for quite some time now, that could all change as well, and Ronnie could be well number one. And Higgins had won the preceding tournament by beating Hendry 9-8 in the final. So that the final frame of the British Open final, which I think was literally only six days before the World Championship began, Hendry was one frame away from securing another season as number one. The thing was, it's not often mentioned now, but Hendry used to say around that time his two big ambitions were to get to the seven world titles to overtake Davis and to have 10 years unbroken as world number one. Now, even if he hadn't won it in 99, I mean, there would still have been other chances to get that seven. But once the, the, the run at number one is over, that's it. That's, that's gone forever. He can't, can't turn that round. So, yeah, that hurt him enormously. Well, here we are. So, seven meetings at the Crucible. And as Stephen Hendry said, we played in the final. Now, well, here we are, rock bottom. Uh, first <laughs> qualifying round. And there's something on this match, isn't there? Because if Stephen beats Jimmy, Jimmy's probably off the tour. Um, well, now, well yeah. uh, barring wildcards, which... Personally, I think he will get one. He's been told apparently he won't. I don't know who's told him that, but I think Henry's probably told him. Yeah, that. I, I think. I, but wouldn't that be like the final nail in the coffin if he actually was, if Stephen beat him and was relegated? But let's look at the match. Okay, it's it's there's so much around it, but it's, they're actually playing a snooker match. Jimmy actually has started to play quite well of late. He did well in Gibraltar Open, had a few wins in the Pro Series. Uh, they've been practicing together. That's going to have to stop. Um, Hendry obviously just played one match in what nine years is it nine years mm. um, so on paper Jimmy's favourite but with all this history we've discussed I don't know I don't know I, I find it very hard to actually have a view on what's going to happen I don't I think Jimmy will win I, I'm I, okay. yeah I don't give Hendry much chance at all I think people have said oh he came back and he made a great comeback against Sell he actually didn't did he I mean he made a century which was impressive but the rest of the time... He was outplayed, though. I don't think Jimmy's going to produce that sort of level. Yeah, but... I don't think anyone will in that first round of qualifying. But, but you know, I mean, Hendry has spent the nine intervening years making jokes about how bad his own safety was and then went out and kind of highlighted it in the match against Selt. And, I mean, it's bound to be. You, you can't come back after nine years and get back into that competitive environment again and expect to, to, to put it up to people. So I think Jimmy will win... Um, I think for both of them, it's a very good draw because there would be very few players in the draw you would feel Henry would have much chance against. I think Jimmy is one of them. You know, If he's going to beat anyone, Jimmy would be one of the few and vice versa. But I think when it comes to it, the fact that Jimmy's still been playing for all these years and you know, has, has produced some good stuff recently. I mean, you look at Gibraltar and how well he played there. Um, I would be extremely surprised. I mean, all these years later, I'm still as big a Henry fan as ever. And I hope he wins, but... I'd be very, very surprised if he does. What about you, Phil? You're an even bigger Henry fan than I am. I'm, well, unashamedly. Um, I, I'm more of a Dave than with you. I've got no firm opinion as to who I think will win. But I do know one thing that will win, which is snooker. And it vindicates entirely the wild card situation. Giving Stephen Hendry a wild card has been phenomenal for the Celt match. Now it's being phenomenal because of the, the white match. And it also, in many respects, does Jimmy a favour because it just highlights how important it is to have these people around still because they can create interest 
and still move the needle. So consequently, if he does drop off the tour and he isn't given a wild card, it's a joke because the guy is still hugely popular and he's still great for snooker and he can do big things for it. If you give him a wild card for two years, if he drops off the tour, what will happen is over those two years, he'll play at least six, seven, eight matches. The home nation springs to mind where everybody comes in at the first round and it's on TV from the start. He'll play five, six, seven matches in that two year period at least where people will want to see him on television and the ratings will be good. Also, you've got to look at the wildcard situation and say, what are the alternatives? Is there anyone better to come onto the circuit in terms of interest, in terms of, in terms of commercial viability? And the answer is definitely no. Give Jimmy a wild card. Absolute total sense. The thing about that is, though, there isn't a defined number of invitational cards, so it's not a choice between him and anyone else. I, I don't think there's any question. I think he'll definitely get one. And if there is any doubt about why getting another uh, two-year card, I think this match will probably clinch it for him because there'll be so much talk about it. I mean, we're here talking about it now. Here's the thing, and we've been accused of being a bit niche over the last year at times on here. I'm, I'm about to take that to new heights or depths, depending on your perspective. Is this the first time there's ever been a match on the tour between two players, both on invitational cards? No, Jimmy played what or not? Ah, yes, yeah. good point. That was a great match, actually. As well, has there yeah. ever been... Someone asked me this, and I, I just sort of didn't go through. Has there ever been a, a world-qualifying match between two people who played in the final? I, I think Higgins might have played Spencer one year, possibly, in the qualifiers. Um, John, Alex Higgins, that is. Have a quick look through the yeah, album. We'll, 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 yeah. we'll, I'll have a look, but it wouldn't we'll, be quick. We'll let you know next yeah. week. Um, my yeah, my view is I, my view is I don't know actually. I think Jimmy, you're right, Jimmy's favourite, but it's the extent to which he could shut out the dynamic. They're not going to be immune to it by any means. The fact they're playing each other, I do think though, Jimmy, you've got to admire the way he's just got over it all. He's not a bitter man at all. Jimmy lives for tomorrow. He doesn't think about all of that that's happened. Of course, he wanted to be world champion. He was good enough to be world champion. He should have been world champion, but he wasn't. But he doesn't. I'm sure he doesn't wake up in the middle of the night screaming about it. He just gets on with his life. He loves playing snooker. He still loves snooker every bit as much as he did back then. And if you're of the, a certain age, as we are, when you remember those matches, I mean, that, those matches are part of the reason I'm sat here now. The rivalry they had, the interest in snooker that they generated. You know, I look back at those matches, I think about you know the people I watched them with. You know, you think about who you were at the time. You mm-hmm. think about who you wanted to be. And now you think about who you are, and I'm really looking forward to commentating on it. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. As I say, at the moment, it's on uh, the Eurosport app. I was thinking, actually, though, you know, I mean, how I would have loved back then to watch the qualifiers in any way. You couldn't unless you went to them. I remember you would have been there, Phil, when Alex Higgins qualified for the last time, 1994, the, the year that eventually we had the Jimmy missing the black in the decider. And I didn't, we didn't have CFAX, which was the only real way you could find out what was happening. So I didn't know he'd qualified until I read it in the Birmingham Evening Mail the next night. And basically a day later, it was too late for the morning papers. So that's how times have changed. At least now, OK, I know a lot of people would like to see it on the TVs. You can actually watch it now, and I'm sure a lot of people will be. I remember a Welsh Open final. The first year it was a ranking event. I didn't know who had won it till a week later. When, when, the, when, the, when, the, uh, when the British Open uh, coverage came on, and uh, they mentioned uh, Stephen Hendry, who's just won the, British Open, uh, the Welsh Open, he'd beaten Morgan in the final. One point we have to, to raise, the four finals between Hendry and White, apart from the first one, the, 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 the trilogy, as it were, 92, 3 and 4, uh, all finished on Bank Holiday Mondays. Yeah. And this is going to be on a Bank Holiday yeah. Monday night. 
I mean, I'd be astonished if it doesn't end up on TV. I mean, you know, put it on Quest, for example, and I mean, 10 million, you know, easily, especially at the moment when everyone's all about nostalgia. I mean, what do people think of? Anyone who's got any interest in snooker, one of the first things they think of about the 1990s, as you say, particularly for people of our age who were teenagers at the time, they remember watching Henry and White playing each other in the World Championship. 23 years later, here it is again. You know, thinking about the, the absurdity of this, there are, all of these matches are going to be streamed all over the world. You're going to be going to some countries and there'll be people sitting there... Who are these two? Well, that's true. That's true. But uh, hopefully listening to this podcast, they'll uh, they'll have found out. Um, Phil, we can't let you go. We've sort of talked preliminary. That's not a word. Preliminarily? (laughs) About our sort of thoughts for who's going to be world champion. Mm. And we'll we'll firm that up when the draw comes out, obviously. what are you, just give us a couple of names. I mean, I think we probably know who they're going to be, but what are you thinking at the moment? Well, okay. I'm not going to um, sit on the fence about this in one sense, but I am very much going to sit on the fence in another. The championship starting the 17th, Phil. Get on with that. <laughs> yeah, no. So, basically... It's an unusual fence, if you're, if you're both sitting on it and not sitting <laughs> yeah. on it. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. So, ca- I'm categorical yeah. in the sense that it's going to be a big name winning it. There's no doubt in my mind. Wow. There is, Ooh, big call. No, no, because... <laughs> Hang on, Ray K. Burley. Yeah, Get yeah. it on Sky News. Yeah, yeah, OK. okay. If you can there find are, her. <laughs> there are so many really top players these days that if one or two of them lose early on, there's a still a, a wall of them to, to, to get past. So... Uh, it will be one of the usual Oh my suspects. God, this is longer than the final itself. <laughs> yeah. Get on with it. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm going to go for... Kyron Wilson as my semi-outsider. My outsider, which he shouldn't be really because of his talent, is Mark Allen. And my main pick would be... Hang on, let me get the drum. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this week. John Higgins. Interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, if he plays anything like as well as he did in the Players' Championship, I mean, that was reminiscent of 1998, I was saying earlier. He had 14 centuries then, which was the most anyone had ever made in that 98 Championship. And you thought he was going to be taking on the mantle from Hendry because he was, he was, you know, playing Hendry's game, but playing it better than he did. It didn't quite turn out that way. It took him nine years to win it again. He ended up becoming four times champion. But yeah, if he produces that form again, then... I absolutely agree. And, and I, at the fact you put Alan in there, I, I am always of the mind, and maybe I'm slightly biased because you know, I'm both from Antrim and all that, but I mean the fact that he's just the sort of player you could imagine, no matter what form he was in going into the championship, and he's not really had a good season, you could just see him going there, turning it on for two weeks and winning it. Not hard to imagine at all. I think I'm pretty confident, and we'll talk more near when the draw's made, if we all wrote down seven names now of likely winners, one of them would be the winner, because they'll be the same people... I think it's very unlikely, based on what we've seen this season, that we're going to have a winner from the qualifiers, for example. I think it's very unlikely. Not impossible, because some good qualifiers, potentially, but it's probably going to be one of the usual suspects, just because it's a really tough tough event to win. You've got to play you know, the best best stuff in the world, and there's so many, you've got to beat so many other good players to do it. Um, obviously, Judd Trump is, is in the mix. Uh, anyway, the qualifiers start on Monday. I think we're going to hopefully do a, a little mm. preview around the time it starts of the whole thing tip our 16 uh, coming through and obviously the crucible starts on the 17th of April but the, all it's all about next week Stephen Hendry and Jimmy White here we are who'd have thought it in 2021 looking yeah. forward to them playing again yeah and we were just talking about this earlier over breakfast weren't we that they met in the first round in 1998 it was the last time they played each other in the world championship 
one of the big first round stories that year as well was Ken Doherty, the defending champion, almost losing on the opening day to Lee Walker. And they're playing again in the first qualifying round. And I'd just like to say, you know, congratulations to Jimmy for being such a, a wonderful force for good in snooker over the years. Regardless of the fact he hasn't won the World Championship, that is a fact, there's no getting away from it. But his career has been vastly better than a lot of people who have won the Championship. Maybe not a lot of people, but certainly a, a few of them. And it's, for me, a little bit like Colin Montgomery in golf. Never won a major, but his career was far superior to some people who did. So let's not lose sight of the fact that Jimmy White had a great career and he's been a great force for good for snooker. Yeah, and just on the invitational cards thing, I, I think, you know... In one sense, scrap it, but in another sense, firm it up. Yeah. Um, Give it I, some clarity. Yeah, what I yeah. would like to see is, and again, you know, another golfing comparison. I mean, you see this in golf. Make people lifetime members, you mm. know? Just say to someone, once you've got to a certain stage, you're a lifetime member, you're on the tour, or have a career money list, something like that. I'm all for these guys being on the tour, 100%, but I actually think it should be... We shouldn't be sitting here discussing whether or not White will get on for another two years I think it should be in the bag already well, just, just to wrap it up it's worth saying as well we've just talked about the World Championship Jimmy actually beat Hendry in other finals and other matches but we all think especially this time of year the Crucible and the one thing about the matches one of them's going to be in the second round so one of them mm. is going to get a little bit closer to potentially walking out there again could you really see it either no. of them winning no. four matches well, Joe, Joe Long is waiting in that line so that's yeah. already that's trouble yeah. isn't it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway we're going to stop there you can email us Snooker scene podcast at mail.com Snooker scene podcast at mail.com We've had a lot of emails in the last week We're going to get to them uh, next week hopefully But that's it We've uh, given our all on Jimmy and Stephen I'm sure they'll give their all next week I think we're all looking forward to it We'll see you very soon Sports Social Podcast Network It is Ryan here And I have a question for you What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.